I'm Kotz, I'm one of the pastors here at Westlight. Excited to have you guys here, and those of you joining us online, welcome there also. And uh, yeah, earlier Lori said that uh, we're gonna be taking questions. Now, I wanna share with you why we're doing this. Well, first, you might have questions that you know, we never addressed, and you've been waiting for us to address. This is your chance to ask specifically those questions. But uh, during my sabbatical, uh, one of the things I noticed, one of the things that, I, that was brought to my attention was that um, when it comes to church, we've kind of reduced church down to basically coming to a gathering, singing a few songs, listening to somebody talk about his or her ideas, and then singing a few more songs and then go home. But church was always meant to be more interactive and that we could hear your voices also. So we thought this would be a good way of doing that. So, um, and not only that, we also realized that our church extends to people who are watching us from home or wherever you are right now. And we're like, how do we get them to get involved in this interaction? So this is our way of saying, we wanna hear your voices. We want you to ask questions. Even if you think, why should I ask this question? This is like probably the worst question I could ask. There might be somebody else that might be asked, wondering the same question. And when you ask that question, the other person's be like, yes, I was hoping that somebody would ask that because I'm too shy to ask it. So um, yeah, so whether if you're, at home, if you're at home, type it into the chat if you're here. Um, at the end, you can raise your hand and then uh, we'll bring the mic to you. And we could, if it's not a question, if it's just like you wanna share some thoughts, you could do that too. So this is just our experiment. If it doesn't work out, we won't do it again, okay? <laughs> or we'll find another way, a better, a better way of doing this. So now you know the heart behind why we're doing this format a little different today. Anyways, with that being said, let's move on to today's sermon. I'm cutting it short on purpose. Hopefully I could do that, but uh, Bad track record. Okay, so if you are coming here for the first time, joining us for the first time, we've been going over the book of Acts, and now we're in Acts chapter 19. Our series is called Power Trip because Paul arrives in a place called Ephesus, and he, for the first time, experiences a power that he can't explain. And he's trying to put his finger on it, like, what is that power that's, that's pushing away God's will for this world? And you know, we talked about how later on, when he wrote a letter back to the church in Ephesus, he said, well, I think it's powers, principalities, authorities, it's, it's like systems, it's culture, it's, it's a lot of things. I just don't know how to describe it. So we've, so far, we've been talking about the frustrations that Paul has felt, trying to discover what this power is. But today, we're going to kind of look on the other side of the coin and ask this question. What does the power of Jesus look like? We've been talking about how the power of Ephesus looked like, how people try to gain power through certain things here and there, right? But now we're gonna be talking about, well, if that's not the power that we should be seeking after, what is the kind of power that we should be seeking after? All right, Jackson. Let's give a hand to Jackson. All right. He loves applause, so make sure you, you yeah. All right. So. Here's a quick recap of chapter 19 because there's a lot that happened in chapter 19. And a lot of things that happened in 19 seems out of place. So this guy named Luke who wrote the book of Acts, he's penning these things down. And a lot of times we're reading it and like, why did Luke include that information? There's like tons of things he could have written about, but he decides to write specific things. And sometimes they're like, you have a limited amount of ink and you use that ink on this information so today when we read it, we're gonna be like, why did he put that there? But we're gonna find out later that the reason he put that there was very intentional, okay? And um, it's basically a type of Hebrew literary style. And 
that's going to reveal to us some other things in this story. We're going to be reading between the lines. And uh, for those of you who are not used to reading Hebrew literature, this is going to be so cool. Okay, so uh, let's recap. We're talking about a place called Ephesus. Here's a map of Ephesus over here in the Mediterranean Sea, right up there. And it's a coastal city. We talked about this before. Paul arrives here, and he decides to stay here for three years. Okay, so here's a recap of chapter 19, and this is going to matter in a few seconds, okay? So first, Paul arrives, and he gets to Ephesus, and he looks around, and he sees a group of people who call themselves the followers of John the Baptist. This is verses 1 through 6. And he's like, hey, yeah, you guys are followers of God? Me too. And basically, the followers of John the Baptist are living according to outdated information. They didn't know that the Messiah showed up. They didn't know that he died on the cross and rose again on the third day. They have no idea that happened. They just have some old info as to, like, like, yeah, we're still following the rules of the Old Testament. We're really good at being religious. And so Paul says, hey, followers of John the Baptist, uh, there's a Messiah showed up and he changed everything. So now you don't have to follow the Old Testament rules. Now all you have to do is well, basically follow Jesus and love your neighbor. That's all you have to do, right? And at the end of that little section, Luke tells us some random information. He says, hey, by the way, the follower of John the Baptist who converted over to Christianity, there are 12 of them. There's 12 disciples. That's found in verse 7. And then right after that, uh, it says that he started teaching people the ways of Jesus, and then he got kicked out of the synagogue. And then, and then so this guy named Tyrannus is like, hey, you can come to my house and you can teach from there. And he said that he taught there for three months. That's found in verse eight. Again, why would we care how long he taught there for? Why would we care that John the Baptist had 12 disciples, right? But he puts it in there. He wastes valuable ink on that kind of stuff, right? And then the story flips over to like, hey, one day uh, some group of people saw, um, they were trying to heal people. And as they were healing people, uh, they found out that if you pray in the name of Jesus, then the healing happened a lot more. And not only that, um, when somebody grabbed the cloth that Paul was using to wipe his sweat or whatever, and uh, they took that cloth and gave it to somebody, that person was healed. So there was like a, a, a healed by a relic story that happens in verses 11 through 12. And then... After that, Luke tells us something random again, because at this point in the story, Paul's like, hey, you know what? I, I think I want to go to D Jerusalem one day. Verse 21. Again, why would he waste? I mean, that doesn't really contribute to the story at all. You know, like he doesn't go to Jerusalem right after this. He's just kind of like, huh, I think I'll go one day. Why did he add that bit of information here? Like to us who read this at face value, we're like confused. But for the people who have Jewish roots, who were raised and going to Jewish schools and stuff like that, they would read this and they would totally see what's actually happening. And we'll talk about that in a second. And then after that, it turns out that Paul had disciples, right? And who followed Jesus. And apparently they were being accused of something that they didn't do. Like a group of people were, uh, one guy, his name was Demetrius, who was an artisan who built little silver shrines for this goddess Artemis. And they were like, you know, when Paul and his disciples heal people, we're actually losing out because people come to this temple to seek healing. And, well, Paul is basically putting our business into the dumpster. So, so we got to falsely accuse these people. That's verse 29. 
And so because of that, people start chanting like, greatest Artemis, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. They're trying to start up a riot. That's what, that's what Luke tells us. And so for that reason, they group, they gather some of Paul's followers and they throw them into this arena, or not arena, more like a amphitheater, and they start doing this unofficial trial on them. And this is where we pick up the story, starting from verse 32. The assembly, that would be a nice way of saying a riot, assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. So there's a group of people who are like, yeah, let's, let's put him on trial. Yeah, greatest Artemis, yeah. And then there's a few people who are like, loud noises. We have no idea why we're here. Like they're confused, but they just love being a part of this big crowd, okay? So I love that Luke put that information in there. Next verse. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, Alexander being one of the followers, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. They're like, guys, there's nothing wrong with what Paul is doing. Next verse. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Again, they're shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They're trying to rally up the crowd, right? Next verse. The city clerk quieted the crowd, and the city clerk is worried. And the reason why he's worried is because Ephesus was the second or third biggest Roman city. And if there was a riot that took place there, then the Romans will come in and occupy even more to make sure that this stuff never happens again. So the, the clerk is like, guys, calm down. We don't want trouble from the Romans. And so I understand you don't like Paul and his followers, but guys, calm down. And this is what the clerk says. Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple, the great Artemis and her image, which fell from the heavens? Like he's saying, guys, don't you realize that we are a very special city? There's a rock that came from space and landed here. And we thought this was a, a, this piece of rock was the goddess Artemis. So we erected this temple. Like of all the places that this meteor could have fallen, it fell here. So we are special people. We are the chosen ones, right? Next verse. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. We're not acting like chosen people right now, Ephesians. So come on, let's, let's be civil. We're acting like some barbarians. Come on, we're better than this. Next verse. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddesses. What are their charges? What did they do wrong? Why are, they, why are they brought here on trial? Like, tell me, did they take something from you guys? Did they desecrate our temple? Did they do anything wrong? Like, uh, no, no. Well, if then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can't press charges there. Like, guys, if you have an issue with them, take it to court. We have a whole system. We have a whole thing that's set up to take care of things like this. This riot is not the way to do it. He's speaking some sense in here, right? Then, if there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. Like, let's do it orderly. We don't want trouble here. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. So... Paul's followers are like, phew, this is like, that was a close one, <laughs> right? And then we conclude with this. In that case, 
we would not be able to account for the commotion since there is no reason for it. There is no reason for it. Like, guys, what you're doing right now is irrational. So go home. Final verse. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Okay, so let's continue with the story of Acts chapter 19. So here's the whole thing that I laid out for you, right? We had followers of John the Baptist that made an appearance. We had the 12 disciples. We had, they, it says that Paul taught there for three months, healed, the, healed by relics, uh, decisions to go to Jerusalem, uh, accusation of innocent. And then finally, verse 32 through 41, what we just read right now, they dismissed the trial. Again, why is all this information here? Well, there's two things that's happening here that, that Luke is trying to tell us when he wrote this. The first thing is that he wanted to demonstrate that the people in Ephesus, well, they were trying to find power. They're trying to find power in these things. They're trying to find power in, next slide, following religious laws, the disciples of John the Baptist. Let's follow all these rules so we, we could become relevant, right? Perform miracles. If we could heal more people, that's more power to us, right? Favor us through, through politics. If we could get the governor on our side, if we could make the way the city runs to go against these Christians, then we have the power, right? We talked about economics, influence through money. If we could make us, if we could grow our business, then that's power. So, so far in this story, we've seen examples of how the Ephesians try to gain power, right? But here, next slide. Let's look at this again. Because this is the second thing that Luke is trying to do here. And this is the part that I love. Because this is how Jewish people, if a Jewish person read this, and it had, and by the way, did you guys know that the book of Acts is a sequel? Luke wrote a first book in the prequel called The Gospel of Luke. Okay, He's assuming that you already read his prequel, the gospel, the, the biography of Jesus. And that now you're reading the sequel, which is the book of Acts. And when you're reading this, you're not just saying, oh, that's interesting that he put that information there. No, 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 no. A Jewish person reading this will look at this and certain things will just pop up in front of them. And I highlight that for you. Like in the first one, it says, the followers of John the Baptist. Then we have the 12 disciples. Then the number three comes up, healed by relics, go to Jerusalem, they were accused, and then the trial was dismissed. What stands out here? If you read the book of Luke, you know that in chapter three of the book of Luke, Jesus shows up and he gets baptized and then the Holy Spirit shows up. You're like, oh, that's like the first one right there. Yeah, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And then the second one, in chapter six, Jesus finds 12 disciples. And then it teaches us that Jesus taught for three years. And then in chapter, what was it? Chapter eight, I believe. In chapter eight, Jesus is healing a young girl who died, and on the way there, some woman touches Jesus' cloak, and all of a sudden, that woman is healed. Jesus even turns around and says, who just touched me? Because I felt some power drain from me, right? And then we have this thing called going to Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 9, I believe, Jesus says, from this point on, every step I take is going to be one step closer to Jerusalem. I'm dedicating my life to going to Jerusalem. People are like, Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem. People are going to want to kill you. He's like, no, I have to go to Jerusalem because that's where I have to die on the cross and be resurrected three days later, right? And then we have the accusation of the innocent. Jesus is accused of something that he didn't do. People are trying to get Jesus killed, but there's no way to do it legally. So they start making up stories about him. And then in Luke chapter 23, I believe, the 
the trial is dismissed. Jesus is taken in front of um, uh, Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate says, what did you do wrong? And he's like, I can't find anything wrong about Jesus. I'm going to send him away. We're going to dismiss this trial. We're going to send him away to uh, another guy. Let's send him to King Herod. Jesus is taking to King Herod. King Herod is like, what did you do wrong? Uh, oh, I, I can't find anything wrong with what Jesus did, so I'm going to send him back to Pontius Pilate. Take him to Pontius Pilate. Every single time, people can't find anything wrong with what Jesus did. So what is Luke trying to tell us in chapter 19. Like I said, there's two things that he's trying to tell us right now. The first thing is this, that the Ephesians sought power in miracles, religion, politics, crowds, economy, chantings, riots, and the legal system. They thought this is how we're gonna make it to the top. But he also said this, that true power is found in living like Jesus. Paul, instead of chasing after any of these things up here, he sought after being like Jesus. He said, if I could live like him, if I could give my life away like him, if I could put others ahead of me like him, that's true power. In my weakness, what the world considers not power, you know, because the world thinks that all this is power, I'm not seeking after that. So people, the world think, they think I'm weak. But in my weakness, I'm actually finding strength, which is like a contradiction, right? You've probably heard this term before, the power of God, power of God. And we probably heard this in church where people say things like, oh, I just won the lottery. That was the power of God. He's the one that made me rich. Or, or, or I was praying and then this miracle happened. That's the power of God. And these are signs of power of God, right? Um, uh, I was praying for a certain politician, now he's in office. That was the power of God that took him there, right? Or, or our church is huge, we have 2,000, 4,000, 6,000 people. That's the power of God. And sure, it could be, right? But that's not the kind of power that Paul was seeking. The kind of power that Paul was seeking was this, self-sacrifice and resurrection. This is what Jesus did. And he said, this is the true power that we should be seeking after. Well, what does he mean by this? The power to lay yourself down for others. And when you do that, you feel at a loss. I just gave up hours of my life to helping this person, and I got nothing in return. I gave up my place so that the other person could have that place, and now I don't have anything, right? When you're feeling at a loss, Jesus, according to Jesus' story, there is a resurrection that takes place. Maybe walls being torn down, addictions being healed, broken relationships being mended. When we lay ourselves down before others, there's a resurrection of sorts that takes place. And this is the kind of power that Paul was seeking. And this is the kind of power that you can't get through miracles, through politics, through money, through crowds. This is the kind of power that only comes through Jesus. And Paul writes about this a lot. He writes about this a lot. And one of the most famous places that he talks about this is in the book of Romans chapter 12. This is what he says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Living sacrifice means I'm not really killing myself. Like that's not, that's like called suicide, right? <laughs> Sacrifice, a living sacrifice is when you lay yourself down 
and put other people's first. When you let somebody else cut you on the freeway or whatever, that's, and it hurts, right? Like, oh, I've been waiting to make a right turn for the last 10 minutes because that light is broken. And here comes a car that's driving on the next lane and cuts right in. Part of me dies when I see that happen, right? And you're like, oh, I hope the cops saw that. And they don't, but they see it when I do it. Well, when I do it, rarely. Okay, but, but a part of me dies when I see that happen. But when I say, no, please take this spot, I'm being a, this is a really bad example, but I'm being, a, I'm being a living sacrifice, right? There's that opportunity that I want to grasp because it's going to serve me so well, but there's somebody else who needs it more than I do. I'm going to step back and let that person take it. A part of me dies. I'm sacrificing myself. But according to Jesus, there's a resurrection of sorts that happens. You might not benefit from it, but the world benefits from it. And so he says, when you do that, when you lay yourself down, when you become a living sacrifice, you are actually doing something amazing. This is your true and proper worship. Now, I love singing, okay? But when Jesus looks at us singing, he's like, that is a pleasing voice. I love that you guys are singing to us, especially that guy who knows how to harmonize. You know, like that person knows how to sing with high pitches. That sounds great. But according to Paul, the greatest form of worship, the truest form of worship is when we lay our lives down for the other people around us, when we put others first. He looks at that and says, now that is a beautiful form of worship. And then Paul warns us, because he saw it in Ephesus. He says this, do not conform to the patterns of this world, because this world is always looking for ways to get the upper hand. How can I be richer? How can I be more powerful? How can I get the edge on this one? How can I get the crowd to be on my side? How can I be more popular? How can I get people to think that I'm better than them? He says, don't conform to that world. Instead, you want to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need to start thinking about the world and yourself in it differently. In other words, the power of God, the, the power God wants us to seek does not look like the power to the world, okay? So what, what, I, what I meant to say there is the kind of power that you should be seeking after is not the kind of what the world defines as powerful. The world might even consider that as weakness. As a matter of fact, Paul in some other parts of the Bible even writes, the world, when the world sees what we're doing, it may look like foolishness. So, oh, next slide. There we go, okay. God's power is the supernatural ability to bring heaven on earth. The God wants us to seek the power that the world considers to be weakness. Oh, you're not that rich. Well, I chose to give it away. Well, that's weakness. Well, according to God, that's strength because it makes a better a world. I'm changing the world. I'm making more heaven on earth. You let somebody else take that promotion? Well, that's weakness. Well, no, from where I come from, what Jesus has taught me is that when I let somebody else take it, I'm bringing heaven on earth. That's power that you can't buy. The world sees us as weak at times, but it's actually the source of power. Amen? Amen. All right, so what we're gonna do right now is we're gonna switch over to the Q&R, question and response. If you guys have any comments or questions, 
And if you're at home and you have some comments or questions you want to ask, feel free to put it in the chat. This is the part where we get to interact with each other. Anybody? I know, we have a very shy community. All right. And by the way, before you start, um, if you're thinking like, well, I'm a pastor, I'm a worship leader, I'm not allowed to ask questions. No, that's, that's the opposite. Okay, we want everybody to be involved in this. Okay, yes. Okay, uh, great sermon as always. Love the series. And I guess in this one in particular, seeking this power that we are taught to do it, it opens up the individual to vulnerabilities. Yes. I guess there's a part of my like self-preservation. like, no, don't do that. But is there a way to like protect ourselves or should we just be more open to being vulnerable with one another? Yes, that is great, great question. Uh, yes, there is a part of us that becomes vulnerable. And uh, Jesus, instead of like defending himself, protecting himself, seeking for self-preservation, he ended up dying on the cross, right? And I'm not expecting anybody here to be like Jesus right here, right now. It's a journey that we're on that we get to a point where we're okay with letting go and being vulnerable. Um, but this is the part where I think as a pastor, I have to make sure that I don't force anything upon anybody here. Wherever you are in your journey, okay, and this is like, I'm just starting on this journey called Christianity, or maybe you've been part of this church or Christianity for a long time, but you've been taught that the most important thing is to you know, put up walls and make sure that nobody hurts you. And yes, you know, if that's where you are, then that's what you gotta do. But further on in your journey, uh, maybe you'll come to a point where you're comfortable being a little more vulnerable than you were the day before, right? And you're hurt by that, it might take you a while to recover from that, right? But then after that, you might have to put yourself out again and say, okay, that was really hurtful last time. I learned a lot, um, but I can't keep myself close because I'm gonna. I, I, I've taken an oath to to participate in this journey of bringing heaven on earth. So yeah, it's hard. Christianity is not easy. If anybody promised you that coming to Jesus is gonna be like, hey, everything's gonna be perfect from here on out, um, that's false advertising. <laughs> uh, Christianity is basically saying, I'm gonna follow the ways of Jesus. Even the idea of baptism is this idea of I'm dying, like going underwater represents death, and now be, we're being resurrected with Christ, that we are, we are making an oath to live a life like Christ. So yeah, um, whenever you feel like, man, I, I don't know if I could do this again, just look at the cross and realize that Jesus was the most vulnerable of everybody. He was also the most powerful and he was willing to let go of all of that. Uh, Paul in the book of, of Philippians chapter two says that, yeah, Jesus being the very nature of God, lowered himself to the level of a man, even to the level of a servant. I mean, that's the most vulnerable that anybody, anybody can be. So um, use wisdom. Um, if you don't feel like it's time for you to be vulnerable with the world or open yourself up to being hurt, that's okay. Okay, as long as you're on that trajectory of, yeah, so. Hopefully that answers your question. Great, great question. Yes. Uh, just to kind of piggyback on that, uh, in your quotation of Romans 12, it's, it starts with, in light of the mercies. Yes. Of you, the view of mercies. So I believe part of the journey is first finding that mercy for yourself. Mm. And 
uh, so that the, it's not a matter of behavior to, to uh, emulate Jesus in behavior, but to emulate Jesus in terms of, uh, I believe Jesus uh, incarnated or had a relationship with God that he understood the mercy of God so well. And uh, so I would uh, just want to add that, that power doesn't come from our trying to achieve it, but power comes from receiving it from God through his mercy. Yes, yes. And this is why we're having this interaction time right now, because there are times where I'm like, you know, so there's a lot to talk about, and I pick and choose, like, I think this is what I should talk about. I missed the most important part, right? Um, it's not that you're just um, mustering up the power inside of you to be vulnerable with the world. It's that God is pouring into you. God has given you strength to do it. So you've received from God and the power to be vulnerable. I, a lot of times, okay, I'm going to ramble on for like two minutes right now. Um, have you guys, this is like the younger kids are not going to understand this, but do you guys remember a show called uh, Captain Planet? Take pollution from pollution down to zero or whatever with your powers combined, right? And everybody has this ring. There's like five teenagers with rings and each ring has a power. Like there's that, that blonde guy who has like fire and there's a girl that has wind. I think she's like Russian because she has a Russian accent. I don't know. And there's this one kid who has the power of heart. Do you guys remember that? Okay, when I was in elementary school, people would fight like, oh, I have the power of, of earth. I have the power of fire. I have, you know. And then the kid who gets left out is like, oh, you have the power of heart. And it's like the most ridiculed one. Like what kind of power is that, right? Well, Paul is actually teaching the exact opposite of that. That the power that God gives you is the power to be vulnerable. And so when God gives you this mercy, gives, this, gives you his love, then we are now able to be a little more vulnerable than we were before. Thank you so much, Pastor Stan. That was amazing. Yes. Okay. So, uh, so it's never a question with me. It's always a statement, but uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but uh, please. But the main thing about being vulnerable and, 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 and being exposing ourselves, uh, number one is, is begin, begin with ourselves. We begin vulner, be being vulnerable with ourselves, telling the truth of our lives to ourselves and being able to face that. Uh, second of all, the, the wisdom of being vulnerable with people outside yourself, it needs to be in a safe place. And those safe places are called life groups. Those safe places are called relationships within this church. Those, those safe places are with people that uh, have the vision of the kingdom of God in front of them. And if you share it in, in those contexts, you, God will protect you and heal you. I have to end with a haiku. Be vulnerable. Compassionate, honest, brave. The power of God. Oh, that's great. Uh, I love it. <clears throat> I don't know if you guys know this, but whoever's preaching, Kelvin sends a haiku of like a summary of your sermon at the end <laughs> to you. So I'm like, I, I look forward to it every week. <clears throat> Excuse me. But yes, uh, there's a verse that Paul uh, he wrote a lot of letters. One of the verses he says is about this thing called jars of clay, that we are this vessel and God pours into us. And when we're jostled, right, and we're hurt and we're beaten, the clay starts to crack. And what comes out of it is 
God, it's Jesus, it's love, right? So we have to be filled in first before we make ourselves vulnerable to the people around us. But the best training ground of being vulnerable to one another is life groups. And like what Kelvin said, it's, it's the place where you are filled up, but it's also the place where you pour out. So very important stuff. Anybody? Anybody online? No? Okay, good. You don't have to ask questions if you're not comfortable. All right. Um, we have time, like we have one more minute, but anybody? Okay, was that great? No? Yes? Yeah? Okay, okay. Let me close in prayer and the worship team will come up.